And uh, it is just good to be back in our Wednesday night study. It is good to have prayer together and fellowship. Um, But it's good to be back in the book of Revelation chapter 15 tonight. Revelation chapter 15. And when we were last here, back in chapter 14, we looked at a, a good chunk of it. We looked at verses 14 and through the rest of the chapter there. We saw a vision of two harvests and a really remarkable contrast between these two harvests. Again, this is symbolic, not physical harvests, but being used symbolically here. They represented two destinies of humanity. One destiny of of redemption, of glorification, and the other being a destiny of judgment. The godly and the ungodly, the righteous and the unrighteous, the believers and the unbelievers. That, That language and this this back and forth that we see throughout the book of Revelation was laid bare. Today, the, the theme of judgment continues. And the text will use God's judgment against uh, Egypt as a pattern for us. And there's a couple things that go back to the book of Exodus that are going to come out here that are really interesting parallels here. And we're never surprised seeing these connections back to the Old Testament. But very often, they go back to the prophets. They go back to uh, Ezekiel. They go back to... Uh, the book of Daniel, but here a couple things, really important themes that we'll see in our text going back to Exodus and really the, the Old Testament law, part of it being in Deuteronomy as well. This, this pattern of judgment, God's judgment against the Egyptians, pouring out his wrath against his enemies, uh, and then ultimately uh, re- redeeming and saving those who are his and their celebration together in his redemption. Let's read the text together. Revelation 15, we'll read the whole thing, it's only eight verses So please look there with me. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So two songs here. Saying, and this is their song. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen and gold sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever, this same God who lives forever and ever. Verse 8 and lastly. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke, from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So as we begin here in this first verse, and we could actually linger on this first verse quite a while. We don't have time. We'll have to move through. But but what a scene it is. This is a heavenly scene. John is there witnessing this scene. He calls it, what does he describe it as there? Great and amazing, and these are English terms basically for you know, just this incredible expression of what he's seeing there. Great and amazing. He saw seven angels. Uh, usually we think of, of angels as beautiful, don't we? And, and glowing, and we'll see a little bit of that. That's always certainly true. There's an illumin, 
you know, sense to the, to the angels there. But we're reminded they're also powerful. They're not just gentle little angels floating around in the clouds that are impotent somehow. No, these are powerful angels. They are God's agents of judgment. Uh, they have seven plagues with them. And th- this is probably meant to echo the plagues again that are poured out in Egypt. We would have to go back to Exodus 7 through 12. But you know that story well, don't you? These plagues that were poured out against Egypt as God's judgment against Egypt and ultimately the means through which he would bring his people um, freedom, liberty, redemption. Think about that theme. Can we get over that? I mean, we, we can't, can we? That God ultimately pours out his judgment and that it's through judgment that his people are redeemed. And so these close, striking parallels by what we see here in the book of Exodus and by what we see here in the book of Revelation and in the Bible as a whole. Those two things are, are together over and over again in God's redemptive history. John explains that in this final phase of wrath, it is just about to be poured out. I mean, there, there's, there's such a close connection here um, to the seven bowls. We'll get there. If you just kind of glance at chapter 16, uh, God willing, we'll get there in a few weeks. Uh, next week, Glenn is actually going to be leading us. So Glenn, if you'd like, you can take chapter 16. Uh, Glenn will be leading next week. Thank you for doing that, brother. He's been such a help, and I know you all are blessed when, when Glenn teaches um, but so you'll see that there, the seven bowls will, will ultimately be expanded there. But we see some of that here in chapter 15 tonight. Um, yeah, goodness, a lot that we could say there. Look, look at verse 2. Before the judgment, the, the scene moves to heaven. So there's sort of this interesting respite between verse 7 and 4. So we've got judgment in chapter or in verse 1, and then judgment resumes in verse 5. But right in between it, there's this bracketed section, verse 2 through 4. Which, again, Revelation does this all the time. It loves that. Uh, just, one, just one thing, because we can easily lose this, okay, because of just our own culture and honestly because of technology. But, but when this was originally read, there were no paragraph breaks, okay? There were no chapter breaks. There were no verse breaks. There was nothing. It was just a big block of text. You squeezed as much as you could on that scroll as, as you possibly can because paper is very, very expensive, and so these sort of things, as you're reading this massive block of text, it would make you go, interesting. And it would be like a little, a little pause. For us, we do that with a, with a break or with a section heading and so on. But, but it's something that, when, and even if you, when you're reading through this, if you're reading through it all in one section, you would feel these little breaks. It's a little bit of a, a pause before ultimately it resumes in verse 5. If you, um, you know, I don't know if there's any Bible museums around here Maybe they have something like this at the Billy Graham Library, but in our seminary in Louisville, you can go through and see um, some very historic uh, scrolls that are unrolled. And again, that text, man, they, they squeezed it in there. These big blocks. There's not even space between the words. Can you believe that? Can you imagine even reading English? Like, there's not even space between words. So anyway, think about that for a moment. But, but we can even feel that as we read through this um, together this evening. So before the judgment, the scene is, is there in heaven, God's people are celebrating him. We saw the same image of this, this sea of glass back in chapter 4, verse 6. So, so these things, are, they repeat themselves, don't they? Probably it comes from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1.22 has the same sort of scene. But it's, it's mixed, right? It's a sea of glass with fire. And if we had time, we could go into some of this imagery. But the sea of glass, uh, so it, the sea was something fearful to the Israelites. They were not a maritime people. Um, if you notice that, they, you, know, they, you look at the Philistines and the Greeks and so on, were very much maritime people. They lived on the water. Jews, not so much. 
The sea was a scary place. They, they lived right on the Mediterranean coast, but the sea was a place where ships disappeared and people died and drowned and so on. But here, the sea is of, of glass, is calm, is under God's control. There's a meekness to it. And yet, there's fire, possibly meaning um, at this point, because we're not quite to the very end yet, there is still a separation between God and man until this judgment. We'll get there in verse 8. Here, God's people stand victorious. Uh, look there at the, the latter part, kind of the second half of, of verse 2. What are they victorious over? How is it describing this? In verse 2 there. Victory over the beast. He has been here throughout the story, right? Taunting, attacking, undermining, terrorizing. I mean, he's a terrorist. He's a cosmic terrorist against the people of God. So victory over the beast. And then in its image, uh, we've talked a lot about that and the number of its name. We've talked about those things, right? The, the 666 and what all that means. I've been through that two or three times, so I won't, I won't bore you with that. But, but over and over again, all of these things that the beast is bringing and its sneaky ways and its undermining of God's people and tempting them and making life miserable and, and hard for them, they have conquered. They've overcome. That's what it is to be a, a believer in Christ. We are overcomers. We are conquerors, not through our own strength, but through the work of Christ, through the work of the Lamb. And there we're going to sing the song of the Lamb in just a moment, this, this, this heavenly scene. So they're, they're standing before God to worship Him with music. They're holding their harps. They're, they're there. They're ready. Uh, Dixie once asked me, my, my daughter, you all, most of you all know her. She's a really thoughtful little girl and always has been. I mean, even when she was real little. And a few weeks ago, she asked me, she said, Dad, who invented music? Where did, where did music come from? It's a very good question. And of course, you know, there's ultimately, like if we're talking from secular history, we'd have to go way, way back. Music's kind of just always been there. As early as written history has existed, there's been music. You have harps and you have drums and you have all kinds of everything. You go to the most primitive culture anywhere on earth and you'll find music. Music is everywhere. And I told her, I said, well, you know, Dixie, God created music. It's from God. God is the author of all good things, of beauty. So we think about art, we think about, we think about nature and its beauty, we think about music, all these things. They're from God. We didn't come up with these things. We simply are, are given them. And we could talk about the same thing with tools and all the different things God has supplied. And uh, these things were not simply figured out, you know, hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years later by man somehow. These things were given by God. I mean, the, the earliest people are making metal tools. You know, it's just an incredible thing. These things come from God as a gift to us. So beauty and, and pleasure and joy, all these things are from the Lord. You think, you think we came up with that sensory pleasure? The, the goodness of food and of music and of sight, all these things, it's God's good gift. These things are all of God. And so when we think about heaven, when we think about God's reward, think about those sort of things. Not merely the the things that are difficult for us to comprehend. Those things are important too, but those things matter. You think about that. The goodness of God's creation when sin has been removed. What a beautiful, incredible thing for us to remember. And Revelation does a good job of bringing those things out, but I just simply mentioned that. Here, even as a side, I was struck by that. So here we have a song in verses three through four. And not really long. If you look at the Song of Moses, you can go to Deuteronomy 32. I mean, it is a long whole chapter. It's very long. This is, this is a small song, something that would have been, been sung. 
This takes us back, though, to the Song of Moses. It cites it, doesn't it? So again, just all these reminders that God is not somehow throwing out everything that has come before. God is not somehow saying, yeah, all that Old Testament, Old Covenant stuff, I didn't really mean that. No, 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 this is fulfilling what was before. Sung by the Israelites in the desert on God's redemption, now his people will sing it at the end of days, the full redemption. I mean, on one hand, we know the Old Testament as a whole finds its fulfillment in Christ. We understand that. Um, But here, it's, it's just so... It's an incredible thing for us to see these specifics of it even, finding their fulfillment in Christ. So many examples that we could focus on, but here, what a, what a beautiful one. I mean, we could stop and expound. I mean, I, I could preach a sermon easily just on these two little verses here. Um, it's such a beautiful thing, but let's, let's read it. I want to read it really slowly and just, just meditate on it. Just think about it. Look at this with me. I better make sure I'm watching my time here. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, God the Almighty, just and true are your ways. He is righteous, he is good. O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord? Like in other words, how how can you not fear God? How can you not fear this incredible God? Who will not fear and who, who will not glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come. Not one or two, all nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Just, th- just that very last line, think about that, the way that God's acts, the great things he has done, inspire his people to praise and to worship when we see what God has done. Um, and that no, no, there's no coincidence that we see this over and over again, God's great acts and thus, Redemptive history on its own. Why would God do all this? Why would God do all of this? Well, it's the great story of God that causes us, when we look at our God, to know what he is like, to know what he has done, to know what he has done even for us. This is not just a story about a few things that God kind of figured out and did. And, oh, this was kind of neat. No, 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 this is one grand story of God's redemption. And for all of eternity, we will be praising him for it. Just glance there at this little song. I'll point out one theme, and then I'm going to ask you for one. So, so he, he is the king of the nations. Of course, I'm thinking about that, our mission trip coming up, and our work being done there in a cross-cultural context. Think about where he says, all the nations will come to, uh, come to worship you. Again, so much there, but, but what else stands out to you there, here in this, this song? What else stands out to you? Anything? Themes, interesting ideas, images. I want to teach you as well as teach you how to do this yourselves. Anything stand out? Don't be afraid, Rena. Rena always has great things to tell me afterwards, so I'm just teasing her a little bit. What, what, about, um, what about, again, God's greatness and his righteousness? I mean, when we think about God, we often talk about his love and what a wonderful thing to talk about. And I preached Sunday, a whole message on God's love. What a wonderful thing. But our God is also great. Amazing are your deeds. He's so powerful. When we get to hear these latter verses, we'll see that all the more his greatness. And connected to that is his righteousness. There is none righteous like God. There is none holy like God. Perfect in every way, without flaw, without mistake, without error, without impurity. Our God is righteous which is why we have to understand God's justice. 
God wasn't righteous, he wouldn't need to judge. He could just go, oh, oh, yeah, don't like it, you did that, but, you know, no big deal. But he's righteous. So sin that is left unjudged, sin that is left without being dealt with, that's a problem for a holy God. So much I could, could say about that. After the Exodus, the Israelites praise God for his mighty deeds as, a, as Savior. Here at the end of days, his people praise him for these deeds, that he's the Savior of his people from sin and death. Not only slavery and physical bondage, but that slavery and physical bondage is a sign and was pointing forward to what God would do to save us from our slavery to sin, our slavery to death, our slavery to the brokenness of this world. It's one of the things we, we said often this week in, in VBS when I spoke to the kids on Wednesday, the brokenness of this world explained by this bondage, sin. In verses five through six, we have this, uh, this scene of heaven itself Again, we have that break, verses two and four, this beautiful sort of song, but now we're back right at it. To the seven angels and the seven plagues. Stunning scene here. And now it's time. There's nothing, there's nothing holding it back. Now is the time for judgment. And with that, there's two connections here. So there's God's judgment coming and then his kingdom coming in its fullness. His rule, his, his holiness, his righteousness, and that of his people ultimately coming here in its fullness. And verse seven motions that. It's, it's time. The four living creatures, you remember them. They're before the throne. We saw them first back in chapter four, verse six. And they have these bowls. And we're gonna see those bowls in chapter 16. This isn't the first time we're seeing the bowls. But ultimately, they're, they're coming here. They're being handed. They, they contain the wrath of God. And these bowls are going to be poured out poured out on unbelievers, those who are, have rejected God, those who have made God an enemy. Just before the judgment is poured out in verse 8, uh, John is in the very presence of God. Just an incredible depiction here. But what it says here is that no one else can enter the throne room, no one else can come here before God until the judgment has been completed. Why, Why would that be? Well, again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Not until God's justice is satisfied. Not until this is complete. Not until sin has been dealt with. Ultimately, will, will we be able to enter in his presence in that full way? It's through the atonement of Christ that we can enter, but still sin has to be reckoned with. Think, of, think about that. What Christ has done on the cross takes care of us, God's people, and yet the final judgment, it is still pending, isn't it? Well, here we see it coming to its close. So we are 15 chapters down, seven more to go. We've been in Revelation a long time, but we're, hey, we're, we're getting really close. And these last chapters, especially once we get into chapter 19, 20, some fascinating things. Um, but here in the last minute or two that we have, any, any final thoughts, questions, insights as we look at this? It's nice to be able to look at a little bit of a shorter chapter here to get, chapter, to get it here in this chunk, but, but a lot of really powerful stuff for us to think about here. Any thoughts, questions? Okay. By all means, I always look forward if you have other thoughts you want to share afterward. Um, but God willing, here in a couple of weeks, we'll return to this. Look forward to having Glenn teaching next week. And um, I'll close this in prayer if there's no final thoughts. Okay, let's pray. Our God in heaven, blessed be your name. God, we do praise you for your love, for your mercy. But oh God, we, we want to just 
celebrate your greatness, your righteousness. Lord, that you will judge wickedness. Lord, that those things in this life that we often see and we often struggle to see, when we don't see justice served, you will serve justice. Lord, when we see suffering and, and, and uh, Lord, hostility and injustice and all the things in this world that are honestly really commonplace to us, oh God, you, God, will take care of those things. God, that ultimately we're reminded, Lord, that if, Lord, if there is not repentance, if there is not forgiveness, oh God, that we remain under your wrath. So we thank you, God, that that is offered to us in the gospel. I pray, God, that we would share that with others. Lord, as a warning, even as we go this week to New Orleans, even as we work with, with kids and other people in parts of the city, God, we pray, God, that we'd be able to warn. Lord, it is good news. It is news about love. It is news about forgiveness. And yet, God, it is a warning nonetheless. And I pray that we would, we would take that, God, for what it is as a sobering reminder. Lord, I pray your blessing over these brothers and sisters here. Pray for their safety. Pray for their health. Lord, I pray that, uh, Lord, you would bring them back to be with us on Sunday. God, as we come together in this place for worship, God, for fellowship, these things we do as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, and God bless you.